continue our study in Luke's Gospel, and while you're finding your place, we say a brief word of introduction. It has been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. In the passage before us, with a little over 300 words, Luke has painted a gallery of pictures that will yield for us several thousand words this morning. You see, this passage before us is filled with vivid imagery. For one reason, because John the Baptist, as a preacher, preached with great detail and with images that brought his message to life. But Luke, in his own right, as he narrates this account, gives us a very vivid portrayal of John's ministry and the way in which different people responded. And we can think about these pictures under four headings, as if we're in a gallery together and we're seeing four main portraits this morning. We're going to see a portrait of a fiery preacher, and we're going to see a picture of repentant people. We're going to see a portrait of a better Baptist, and we're going to see a painting of a hard-hearted king. As we look at these portrayals here in the Gospel of Luke, I want you to understand that they all work together in concert and in contrast, to teach us what it means to live a life of true repentance, to show us the nature of true religion. And so if you found your place, would you follow along with me, beginning in verse 7, and I will read to verse 20. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that will receive your word and understand. Make us like the crowds, the soldiers, and the tax collectors. Make us repentant people, Lord. Let us not be like Herod, hardened and obstinate, refusing to repent. 
Let your word have its effect in our lives by your gracious, sovereign will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began to look at John's ministry and we read these words in Luke 3, verse 2. The second half of verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And there we talked a little bit about what it means to repent and how we ought to respond to God's word. But this morning we're going to look more closely at this idea of repentance. We're going to see it unfolded, fleshed out in pictures. In, in the example of the people that heard John's min ministry and John's preaching, and also in the way in which John himself preached and the things in which, that he said. And I said to you this morning in the introduction that we're going to see four portraits, portraits of repentance and what it means to live a life of repentance in this passage. And the first that I presented to you was this, a portrait of a fiery preacher. You see, if John had gone to seminary sometime in the late 20th century, he wouldn't have preached like this. He would have learned that what you need to do in order to attract a following to gain a crowd is that you need to arrange your church with stadium seating and folding cushioned chairs and what you ought to do is have a big screen and maybe a big band and make this a comfortable place for people to come, a place where people feel welcomed and entertained and slowly but surely introduce some of the harder things into the message but start with the positive things and focus on those. That's the message he would have learned if he had gone to seminary in the 20th century but John wasn't trained there. John was trained in the wilderness. And he learned from the Word of God. He learned from the prophets. And so he knew and he realized that the most important thing is not having a large crowd and a large audience. But the most important thing is how the people who come respond to the Word of the Lord. The most important thing is not what they did in terms of the rituals and the actions. But the most important thing was the heart that the Word produced in them. That is, the changed heart that they all needed and that we need today. Thus, John doesn't begin with words of comfort, but he begins with words of confrontation, and he says this to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he challenges them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see in this first image in John's preaching, he calls forth the idea of snakes, of serpents, of venomous snakes. And he says to the people, you're a brood of vipers. That is, you are offspring of serpents, of snakes. And he's not saying anything about their biology or their ancestry. What he's saying is that their actions are so snake-like, that their lives are so serpentine, that they are essentially the offspring of snakes. And in this picture, if you can imagine it with me, John is comparing these people to snakes fleeing a brush fire. You see, in the Judean wilderness, what would happen if fire caught hold is that the snakes would come in mass out of their holes, fleeing from the judgment. And John says, that's what you're like, because your lives are like the lives of snakes. You're like venomous serpents. And this is an image, of course, for the wickedness that pervades their lives the way in which they live selfish lives, the way in which they embrace deceit, and the way in which they embrace hatefulness in their lives. Very likely it's ultimately an allusion to that ancient serpent, that serpent that we read about this morning in Genesis 3. But Luke doesn't dwell on that particular allusion. We see it more clearly in John chapter 8 and 
in 1 John chapter 2 and 3. But here Luke simply dwells on the character, their attributes, that they live a life that reflects their father, that they are children of serpents. So he challenges them. Don't just be like snakes that flee from the fire. You need to not just flee from something, you need to flee to something. But in their flight, they would have been tempted to think that what I need to do is I need to do something. I need to embrace some kind of ritual. John was baptizing in the wilderness. And some of them would have thought, well, I'll go out to John and I'll get dunked in the Jordan River and that will make everything right. We'll just add it on top of a list of things that I already do in my life. I pay tithes to the temple. I go to the temple and I offer the sacrifices. I participate in the feasts. I do those things that are in accordance with the law. Later in Luke, we'll see a couple of individuals at least who think that way. I do all the things that the law requires. And I'll just do this one more thing because here's a prophet. A little bit odd prophet, but he's baptizing people and I'll go out and that will save me from the fire. That will save me from the judgment, from the wrath to come. And John wants them to know That's not it. It's not that he's saying don't be baptized, but he wants them to think before they do it. Why are you coming? He wants them not to rely on the ritual itself, nor to rely on anything else. So he says, don't even begin to think. Do not say to yourselves, don't think in your hearts, don't even let it cross your lips or cross your mind. Well, we have Abraham as our father. Later, in John's gospel, in fact, we see the Pharisees say that very thing. Many in Israel would have been tempted to think, well, if it's not the water of baptism, then it's my ancestry, my relationship to Abraham. That's what makes me a child of God. And John says, no, that's not it. Because in that regard, if that's what you're depending on, you're no better than these stones. And this other image, then he says, God could raise up children for Abraham from these stones. How are you different from them is the point. Isaiah in Isaiah 51 speaks of Abraham in this way. He tells the people to look to the rock from which you were hewn, to Abraham and to Sarah. In other words, he calls them to look to their example. Don't just say, I'm related to them, so I'm good. Say, let me be like them. That's what John wants the people to do as they come out to be baptized. And so he challenges them to think about the nature of true religion. True religion does not massage our tender egos. It challenges us to humble ourselves before Almighty God. And that is what John was doing as he preached. He wanted them to see the necessity of repentance. It was not enough to be dunked in the water. It was not enough to have a godly heritage. They needed to have a changed heart. And the evidence that they had a changed heart would be seen in fruits that flow from a heart of repentance. In our second portrait, we'll see what kind of things he has in mind. But here he's focused on calling them to the thing that they most need, that inward change. And this is not only a needful message, it's an urgent message. For John says, even now, The axe is laid to the root of the trees. We've seen snakes and we've seen stones. And now in this third image in John's message, he says, look, here's a tree. There's an axe laying at it. What does it tell you? 
Someone is ready to come and take that axe and to strike that tree and chop it down. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. But what will he do? What will a man do with the hatchet if when he comes to the tree, he sees that the tree is good and it bears fruit? He will let it grow. He will let it produce its fruit. But what will he do if he comes, as John says, and he sees that this tree does not bear good fruit, whether there's no fruit or the fruit is diseased, then he will cut it down and he will throw it into the fire. He wants them to see that it's not only necessary that they repent, that they need to do it now. For the judgment is at hand. Here John does not clearly distinguish between the coming, first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. He doesn't give us a full-blown doctrine of judgment. Very often when the prophets spoke of judgment and they spoke of salvation, they spoke of the two in one breath. God's saving work was also seen in work of judgment. As God brought judgment upon rebellious people, God saved His people through that judgment. And over and over again, we see that pattern play out in Scripture. But so often as the prophets did, so too John, he doesn't distinguish between these two things. He wants the people to see that whether that judgment is in the future or now, it's imminent for all of us. And even if Christ should not return for another thousand years, we're only a breath away from facing our Lord and our Maker. So John says, the time is now. Do not wait. Repent. It's necessary and it's urgent. Well, as we turn then from this portrait of this fiery Baptist, this fiery preacher, no, I don't use that word Baptist with a capital B, John the Baptizer, as we see that portrait of a fiery baptizer, a fiery preacher, we turn then to another portrait. And in this second one, we see a picture of repentant people. Here in this picture of repentant people, we move from the necessity of true repentance to the nature of true repentance. See, repentance is not less than acknowledging our sin before God. It's what we call, that's what we call confession. But it is more. It involves turning. Ultimately, it is seen in a changed life. That does not mean it involves perfection. It has more to do with the direction of our lives and the perfection of our lives. We will not experience perfect obedience this side of eternity. You must know that. We will not be perfected in this life until Christ comes again or He takes us to heaven before. We will not be perfected this side of eternity, and yet we are called to radically alter the direction of our lives, to change that direction 180 degrees, and to pursue the things of God, to pursue the things that God says are right, the things that God says are good. That's the nature of true repentance. And it's something that we do repeatedly in our lives. We all sin. We all fall short time and time again. And when we do, what do we do as Christians? We turn. We're constantly turning and coming back to the path God has laid for us. Turning from sin and turning from trust in ourselves and turning to God, His ways. 
That's the nature of repentance. And we see it portrayed in the crowds and the tax collectors and the sinners. It begins with a question. They ask, what then shall we do? You see, this question in Luke, in his writings, in the Gospel and Acts, is a significant question. We see it on the lips of many. It does not always mean that the person is repenting. For we see that a rich young man and a self-righteous lawyer will say, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? They were not interested in repenting. They were interested in being told that they were great, they were good. But later in the Gospel of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, we do see it again in a much more similar way to the way that we see it here. In Acts chapter 2, after Peter preached at Pentecost, And he told the people that you did this. Namely, you are the ones who put the Christ on the cross. And he confronted them for their sin. They said to him in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And the message that Peter gave them is the same. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I do want to qualify and say that that baptism is a different one than John's baptism, and we'll talk about that next week. But they are similar. There are points of comparison. What I want you to see here is this comparison and the question, what then shall we do? The people in Luke chapter 3 are asking the same question as the people in Acts chapter 2 because what it portrays is that attitude of repentance that seeks to know, that seeks from the Lord through His messenger, what is it that the Lord would require of us to show a heart of repentance? And John responds by giving them concrete actions. He says to the crowds, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, this is not the sum and substance of repentance, but it's exemplary. In other words, John is giving them concrete examples of what it means to love one's neighbor. In that context, the people were called to live under the law. But many of them thought, well, if I simply follow the prescriptions of the law, if I bring the sacrifices and offer the tithes, I will be good. And they needed to see that the law was founded on two great principles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And where these things are lacking, it doesn't matter what you do. You're not fulfilling the law. You're not living a life of true repentance. And so he challenges them in this way. This morning we had a real life example of this kind of attitude. These two men came seeking help. One of our brothers even challenged me by his example of helping these men who were in need. Those are the kind of things that flow from a heart that trusts the Lord and a heart that is repentant and seeks to live in accordance with His Word. That's the kind of life that we ought to live. It's the kind of life that John challenges the crowds to live. And to the tax collectors, he has specific advice, a specific challenge. He says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And we should understand that in this context, tax collectors were hated and for good reason. A tax collector is more like a toll collector in this context, like someone who would 
sit on the turnpike and collect your money. And yet they weren't hired for that job at a wage, but rather they bid on that job, they bought that job, they paid up front, and they had to recoup their investment. And very often, in almost every case, they did so by underhanded means, by charging more than they were authorized to do, and by extorting people. And John says, don't do that, but charge only what you're authorized to do. And to the soldiers, too, they would have lived on meager salaries. And at that time, they, they wouldn't have been like modern soldiers in our own nation who were well-supplied and well-cared for and generally known as protectors of the people. They would have been oppressors of the people. And even in their personal lives, they would have been given to, the word here literally could be translated shakedowns. John's saying no more shakedowns. Don't rough people up. You're, don't be a, like the mafia. Don't extort people for money. Don't mistreat them to enrich yourselves. Be different. And it's striking that John doesn't say, if you're a soldier, you need to resign your commission. If you're a tax collector, you need to quit this job. He says, go back to those jobs and perform your duties in such a way where you're different, where it's obvious that your heart is changed that you have embraced the word of the Lord with an attitude of repentance that turns from your way of life and turns to another way. So he challenges them to be content with their wages. And this is a picture of what true repentance looks like. And yet it's not complete if we don't step forward in our gallery and look at this next portrait, this portrait of a better Baptist, because we must understand that true repentance is the beginning of true religion, but it is not an end in itself. Otherwise, it's no different than baptism not understood, which is just an empty ritual with no meaning. Baptism is an important sign, but if we don't understand what it's signifying, we don't do it for the right reason, it's just an empty ritual. And if we only repent because we're just interested in personal reform so that we might be good citizens in this earthly life, we've missed the point of repentance. We've not understood what it's meant to do. John's ministry was not about reforming people only. It was about preparing people for their Lord. And we see that his call to repentance had its effect in their lives. You see it here in verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. I have made this point before and I will make it again. Luke has subtle ways of connecting different groups of people in his gospel. And one of the ways is by characterizing them with the words waiting or expectation, two words that translate the same idea, and questioning in their hearts or the thoughts in their hearts. We remember Simeon's words to Mary in Luke chapter 2 when he said that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and that he will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. Some people's thoughts in their hearts are going to be evil thoughts we're going to see. Some people, the questioning of their hearts is in line with the purpose of, of God. And very often we see that those people are also characterized by waiting. They're characterized by thoughtful expectation where they look at the work of the Lord and as they see it unfold, they begin to question, what is the Lord doing in our lives? What saving purposes is He bringing to pass in our midst? 
and they don't have all the details right. They're thinking maybe John is the Christ. They're thinking along the right lines, even if they've got some of the particulars wrong, because they responded with repentance, and so their hearts are prepared, and therefore they are prepared to receive the message in this next portrait, when John points them not to himself, but to another, to a better baptizer. One who is more worthy and more mighty than John, and he characterizes him in three ways. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And in our first image then, we have a portrait of a man stooping down to untie the straps of a sandal, of another man's sandal. And we think it would be funny, but they would have thought it was shocking. Because even in that context, a slave, even a slave would not have demeaned himself to unloosen the sandal strap of his master. And yet John will not stoop down to loosen the sandal strap of Christ, not because he finds it demeaning, because he says, I'm not even worthy for that honor. This one after me is so great that I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his shoe. And he gives a second then, second picture then, to characterize the one who comes after him. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, John alludes to the fact that his Baptism only signifies something, something that only God can do. But the one who comes after me, the Christ, the one whom you're to look to and the one whom in, in whom you're to trust, his baptism is effective. For he baptizes not merely with water, but with the Spirit and with fire. And here we have two images then. Fire generally, it connotes the idea of judgment. And that is right here. For in this context we see the idea of fire used repeatedly. We saw it there with respect to the tree being cast into the fire. And we'll see it again with reference to the chaff being thrown into unquenchable fire. Fire is a reference to the judgment of God. And yet it's a difficult text to sort out because the way in Luke, which Luke has written it, it seems as if the baptism is applied to the same people. That it is, the question that is, is it one baptism or two baptisms? Does he baptize with the Spirit and baptize with the fire? Or does he baptize with the Spirit and fire? And commentators wrestle with this point. I would suggest that we should look back to that point I made about the prophets and how they tended to merge pictures of salvation and judgment together. And here then we can see this baptism in a sense as a kind of refiner's fire. Just as gold is put into the furnace so that impurities might be removed, this baptism has an effect on people whereby it separates people. It separates the repentant from the unrepentant. It separates the believer from the unbeliever. And it ultimately culminates in a final fiery baptism of judgment. The people of God, the people who trust Him, the people who come to Christ in repentance and faith, they will be guarded from that fire. They will be protected from that fire, though they are brought through it. This is the idea that we see, for instance, in Psalm 91, verse 7, where the psalmist writes, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. And this is rooted in the first verse of that psalm. For he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Here is a picture of one who is 
the giver of the Holy Spirit, the sender of the Holy Spirit, who is able to baptize us with an effective baptism by which we are sanctified, by which we are cleansed, by which we are made pure and holy before our Maker. And He's also the one who stands as the judge of all the earth, who will surely baptize with fire. And those who are not found in Him will not pass through that fire unscathed. And so then with a final picture of this better baptizer. John points to him as one who holds his winnowing fork in his hand. That is, he's as a man who stands at the threshing floor after the harvest and all the grain is spread out on the threshing floor and it's been beaten and the chaff has been separated from it, but it's all mixed together. And he passes his winnowing fork over it and he clears away the chaff and the wheat he puts into his barn. And those of you who've seen the process can Tell me later if I got that backwards. But you see the image in any case. He passes the winnowing fork over. And he separates the wheat from the chaff. The wheat he will gather into his barn, that is, into his kingdom. But the chaff, what will he do? He will throw it into unquenchable fire. A fire that will not go out. A judgment that is forever and ever and ever. That's what he will do for those who refuse to repent. It's an urgent warning. It's not the kind of message that we want to hear in our own day when we are obsessed with the power of positive thinking and we think that good news must always be happy. It must always tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. But John doesn't preach that kind of message. He preaches about one who is mighty to save and also is mighty to judge. And he is coming and he is the one that we must look to for our salvation. For what John would ultimately come to understand is this one, when he first came, did not come at first to judge. He did not come at first to pass his winnowing fork over us, as he will at the end, that is but He came instead to bear the judgment for us. All of those images of unquenchable fire, of trees thrown into the fire, they are pictures of the wrath of God directed against sin. And what Christ did on the cross is He bore the wrath of Almighty God that should have been directed at us so that our debt might be paid. Because He is the more worthy one, the perfect and eternal Son of God, what you would pay for through all of eternity in infinite debt for a sin against an infinite God, He paid for in a moment because of His infinite life given for us. That is what it means to say He died for our sins. He bore the wrath that we deserve so that we might be forgiven of our sins. If you are to receive this good news as good news, you must take that first step by beginning with repentance. You must prepare your heart through repentance and faith in Him. And you must live a life that is repentant and trusting for all your days. You are saved by a free gift of God because Christ paid your debt and you receive that gift if you repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. There is no other way, but thanks be to God, there is a way. And now, we might like to end our stroll through this gallery there 
But there's one more portrait that we must consider. A picture of an unrepentant king. A picture of a, tra- of a hard-hearted king. It is a tragic picture. For what we see in verse 18 and verse 19, so with many other exhortations, he, John, preached good news to the people. It is good news. This is gospel. But Herod didn't receive it that way. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. In three short phrases, Luke tells us all we need to know about Herod. John had reproved him because of Herodias, his brother's wife. Here Luke assumes that we know the backstory that we receive in Matthew and Mark, or simply for his first readers who might have just known it. It was the tabloid talk of the town, so to say. John had called upon Herod, like he called upon everyone, to repent of his sin. He gave him a specific call to repentance because he took his brother's wife, which was not lawful to do. Herod rejected that. He gave him a general call to repentance because Herod had done many wicked things. And Herod rejected that. And to add the cherry to the top, Herod decided he would have no more of it. He silenced the messenger of repentance by shutting him up in prison. That's the response of unrepentance that Luke leaves us with. And it's striking. For as we step forward to say, how should we apply this text in our lives? And we ask the question that the crowds ask, what then shall we do? We are informed by what we see in Herod. And we can summarize our applications in three simple ways. Don't be like Herod. Don't be surprised by people who are like Herod. And don't be afraid of people who are like Herod. Rather, to state it positively, be like the soldiers and the tax collectors who repented. And be amazed at the extraordinary grace of God. And fear Him and Him alone. See, everything in us wars against this message. We want a Pollyannish gospel. We only want what is positive and uplifting, but we cannot have the gracious and joyful good news of the gospel apart from this simple truth. As sinners, we stand condemned. Neither Luke nor John nor Christ will give us that kind of watered-down gospel that says you're good in and of yourself. But why is it our natural inclination to hate this message? I suspect it's rooted in our pride. If someone confronts us, if someone criticizes us, what is our first thought? Who do you think you are? Not what shall I do, but who do you think you are? How do you think you can speak about me that way? When the Word of God confronts us, we feel the same basic inclination. We have no problem thinking others have sinned, but not us. We are fooling ourselves if we think this way, as we said together when we read the words of 1 John chapter 1. But you might say, sure, I have sinned, but I will make it right. Or you might say, as my brother's boss once said to him, I don't know about all that Christianity stuff. My priest has it covered for me. You can't trust in someone else other than Christ. You can't 
outsource your faith to someone else. You can't simply rely on the things that you do. And we are all tempted to do that. We think, well, I go to church. I put my money in the box. I do the things that a Christian does. These rituals, if that's the way we think, they are just empty things that we do. They're not true worship. They're not true religion. True religion begins with a heart that has changed, a heart that receives God's Word and loves it and repents. We don't want to hear that, but we need to hear that, and we need to love it, and we need to embrace that message because it is good news. It's hard to accept, not because it's hard to say that I have sinned, that I need the grace of God. That requires no effort to say. It's hard because it requires a complete and total change of our heart from pride and self-dependence to humility and trust. But this is what we are called to do, and we are called to do it with a promise. As James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So the res resist the urge to be like Herod. Do not harden your hearts as we heard in our call to worship. Repent, believe, trust in the Lord. There is no other way to be saved. Now if everything in us wars against this message, this is surely true for the rest of the world. And so we should not be surprised that we see others who are very much like Herod. This message inspires hate and animosity in people who reject it. And that is part of God's refining work. It's part of how, in the words of Simeon in Luke 2.35, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. You see, Herod was not the first, and he will not be the last to persecute God's messengers. John stood in a long line of persecuted prophets who were hated and persecuted, and many after him endured the same kind of treatment. Even in our own day, we see it. Recently, a church in our nation adopted simple language that many churches have adopted in their statement of faith, reflecting the Bible's teaching on marriage and sexuality. It was broad language. It was clear language. It was not targeted at any one group. And yet when the media caught wind of it, they distorted it and they represented them as though they had done some kind of hateful, bigoted thing and it became an uproar and it did not matter what the pastor said or what interviews he gave or how clearly he spoke and how charitably and winsomely he spoke. They hated it and they reviled the messengers and accused them of being loveless and unloving. unloving. We should not be surprised by this this, our Lord told us, will be the way of things. What should surprise us is that God endures it for so long so that many might come to faith. And we too were like them. To use the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, and again in Titus 3, 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What should surprise us is that the fact that God endures this disobedience in us in order to graciously give us time to find repentance. For as Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, it is not His will that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has endured thousands of years of rebellion from His creatures. And we too were once counted as rebels among them, and he has done it because he is long-suffering and he is loving. Again, in the words of Paul, he has endured with much 
patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Never be surprised by the Herods of the world, but never let a day go by where you do not marvel at the matchless grace of our God who has loved us with an everlasting love. And finally, don't be afraid of Herods in the world. He arrested and beheaded John, but Herod's end came nonetheless. And John's message lives on, and John too lives on, as our Lord said when he called us his friends. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I'll leave the exposition of that text until we come to it later in Luke. But brothers and sisters in Christ, know this, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. He alone has authority to save and to judge. He alone gives eternal life and takes it. He alone is to be feared, and if you fear him, you have no need to fear anyone else. They may take our possessions and our livelihoods. They may even put us to death. But after that, what more can they do? Our Father knows all this. He knows our needs. He has numbered the hair on your head, and he has numbered every day of your life. And so you can trust him. Let us therefore live joyfully and happily continuing to proclaim this gospel. As those who've received the message, let us become its messengers. As we proclaim this good news to the world, that though we are sinners in need of a Savior, we have that Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. Only trust, only believe, only endure. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now as a people in need of your mercy. We pray, O Lord, that you would pour it out upon us. Make us always to be hearers and doers of your word, Lord. Make us to walk in this truth and soften our hearts so that we will not rebel against your word. Make us to walk in the light, Lord. Make us to be confessors of our sins. Make us to turn from these things to a life of faithfulness and repentance. These things, O Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I invite the men to come forward, I want to say a few words about what we're about to do. Just as John fenced the table, that is, not the table, so to say, but fenced his baptism, and challenged people to think about what they were doing before they participated in that baptism, So too, it's incumbent upon me to challenge you to think about what you're doing when you take the cup and the bread in hand, to participate in it that way. The men are going to come forward and they're going to pray as we distribute the elements. And as these are being distributed, take it in your hand and hold it with you. And think during that time. Reflect upon your sin. Reflect upon the grace of God. Reflect upon the things you've heard. And repent and believe, and joyfully receive the elements. And one final word, let me say, I I said it last time, and I just want to be clear. 
I, I do ask you, if you've not yet been baptized, or if you're not yet a believer in Christ, just let the elements pass you by. And it's not because we want to push you away. We want you to see it as an invitation to come into our midst, but we also want to do things in their proper order. And the order we see in Scripture is that we participate in this, in this element, in this ordinance, after we have declared our faith in baptism. So just let it pass you by. But afterward, if, if that describes you, and we have baptism on the schedule for next week, but if it describes you, come and see me. We'll talk and we'll schedule something. And we'll, we'll we, we take it as an invitation and a word of our love to you. So let me invite the men to come forward as we prepare to take the bread and the cup.